Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, what's up, all of our liberty-loving friends? This is Nate Thurston. I'm not here this week. Well, I'm kind of here. I'm in the office right now, and it's Wednesday. So technically I'm here, but we're not doing any fresh episodes this week. Been putting out some episodes from some of our friends, and for this one, and tomorrow's as well, I had sent an email over to Mark Clare. Some of you have heard of him before, I'm sure. We've been talking with him. Uh, he's been connecting with us, doing some of these expat money sponsorships, some of these ads that we have here on the show. And I sent it over and I said, hey, why don't you just send me a couple of the best expat podcast episodes that you can. Just send over some, just two of the best ones. What are they? What are they? And what, what do you know? He sends me over a couple. One of them's with a guy named Tobias Ruck, which you'll be hearing today. And then the other one that he chose was with this guy named Mark Clare. <laughs> so before we get going with this episode, I'm going to tell you about an upcoming online summit from expatmoney.com with over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life and business and wealth offshore. It is free to attend. So go over to expatmoneysummit.com. The link will be in the show notes. Reclaim your freedom from all this chaos and uncertainty. They're going to be covering how to secure your own plan B safe haven, how to use foreign currencies, offshore banking, decentralized finance so you can safeguard your money, how to legally reduce your tax burden, how and where to safely store gold, silver, other precious metals, where the best countries are in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family, how you can get a second passport and travel the globe with no restrictions, get in and out of all those different countries. You're going to learn about a libertarian island haven, private cities, communities on the ocean, food and energy, independent towns in Latin America. So register now for free. That's at expatmoneysummit.com. This is your way to fight back against what's happening in this world. Stand up, protect yourself, find out how to secure your new life abroad. Register now for free, expatmoneysummit.com. Enjoy the show. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Before we get going today, I just want to let you guys know that my really good friend, Ollie Richards, has released a whole ton of new courses based on learning a second language. Now, these are the exact types of courses that me and my family used to go from really crummy Spanish to fluent in less than two years. I use a lot of his methods with teaching my own daughter. My mother uses these ones. My wife uses them. I use them. We're big, big fans of Ollie. And you know what? He has actually become a really, really close friend of mine over the last couple of years of working together. So I hope that if you guys are going to be an expat, if you're going to live overseas, if you're going to be a digital nomad, that you guys actually put in the time and the effort and the energy to learn some of the local languages of the countries that you're going to. I think that you'll have a richer experience if you do this. I think it shows respect for the culture. And I think you'll just have a lot more fun. So what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, forward slash language. That's it, expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language, and check out the courses that he does. We did the Spanish program, but he has French and German. He has Italian, and now he's coming out with Turkish, Chinese, Portuguese, Russian, whole bunch of languages coming out. So it is really, really exciting times. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look at this. Just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language. Okay, let's jump into today's interview. 
Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is a developer, entrepreneur, and traveler. He founded B.Cash, a company spearheading crypto NFC payments, and Lotus, a cryptocurrency based on eCash that focuses on stability, scalability, and human flourishing. Currently, he's working on Stamp, an end-to-end encrypted peer-to-peer messenger and privacy wallet. Today, we're going to be discussing privacy coins, crypto tokens, and the dreaded CBDC that is going to be pushed on all of us. So please welcome to the show, Tobias Ruck. Tobias, how are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. How are you? Doing good. Now, Tobias, talk to me about your backstory. How did you get into crypto and privacy coins and why is the CBDC, and, and maybe we'll get into what is it, why have these types of things fascinated you so much? Yeah, it's like a very winded story, but I think the short one is that like I've always been like kind of searching for like ethics, right? like because my school really prepared me ill for like how to be good, or, like what to do in life. And I always had like this entrepreneurial spirit, like I wanted to do things on my own. And school like really kind of crushed that, right? It was like, oh, when you do things on your own, like you're a bad person, right? Like you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do it the way the teacher wants it or whatever. So yes, like I had to discover for myself that that is what I wanted to do. I mean, the best area for that turned out to be crypto, right? Like I always had this very mathematical, like logical interest and always had a big interest in computers and and development uh, and so forth. And also later in life, I discovered libertarianism, you know, anarcho-capitalism, all these good ideas, free markets, and that really the best way to improve our lives, to improve the world, to you know, protect the environment and so forth is through like economic freedom. What I discovered is that the, the area where I can best apply my skills is in crypto, is in cryptocurrency coins, but also like in more generically cryptography, right? Like I'm building peer-to-peer, you know, encryption systems and so forth. Yeah, I think that's a good overview. So, but did crypto bring you to, to be a developer or did developer bring you to crypto? Like which one came first? What was the chicken? What was the egg? Definitely the developer. So I actually wanted to become a developer before I even knew that was a thing. I, I don't know, like I started developing all kinds of things. Like when I was in school, like I was really good in math always. But then I think in, I don't know, eighth, ninth grade or something, we got a graphics calculator. And that one was programmable, right? You could write your own programs. So what I started, instead of paying any attention to the teacher, I, I spent my entire time in maths in maths classes, developing all kinds of games, like I think some kind of gambling games, because those are really easy to do on that kind of device or whatever other kinds of games. And my grades dropped like free fall, like I was devastated. But (laughs) the plus side is that I was preparing myself for my actual life, right? So that... Well, that's got to be interesting from your parents' side as well, where they're probably saying like, pay attention in class, pay pay attention in class. And then you don't pay attention in class, you get crummy marks, but then you end up taking that thing that you were passionate about yourself and making an entire career out of it. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Like my parents are like, they used to be very preachy, especially about me getting a like normal job and not doing uh, entrepreneurship. And my mom even printed me out like, oh, here are some jobs that you can do, right? Like, we don't want you to do this, making your own business or whatever, because, you know, many people fail at that, which is true. But, you know, I still wanted to do that. And now they're like, um, quiet, right? <laughs> they no longer tell me what to do, which is good. Well, it's pretty funny, though, that people, I mean, not just your parents, many parents in the world think that the safer route is to go and get a job. And I'm like, you're literally getting all of your money from one source. That is like the riskiest thing in the world. And then look what's happened in the last two years. And everyone was furloughed and taken off work and deemed non-essential. And then they sat at home and did nothing. And that's criminal. But entrepreneurs, everyone had to pivot and figure out different ways and different sources of income. And I think it's a lot less risky to be an entrepreneur, to be honest. 
like I didn't have to do anything because I was working remote. I was working on like all sorts of different crypto projects, which all made me money, obviously. And I didn't have to take any vaccine. I mean, I had to take tests for traveling, right? Because I, I couldn't avoid that, obviously. But like nobody really told me what to do with my body other than that. And yeah, so that actually was a way safer route, as you said. Definitely. Well, I've had my really good friend, Marco Wutzer, on the show before, and we've talked a lot about cryptocurrency. Well, on that episode and privately and, and many other things, but he always comes at it from the investor and the speculative side. So I was really excited to kind of have you on to talk about more of the technical side. I'm, I'm not necessarily a technical person when it comes to these types of things, but really from the privacy side and the different coins. So what was it at the beginning that kind of led you down this path in the crypto path? Because there really is so many different directions you can go. Yes. So, well, I think I first heard of Bitcoin very early, like I think when I was 13, 14, 15, something like that. Unfortunately, back then I didn't have any money, so I couldn't buy any, <laughs> any Bitcoin. Also, I didn't know how to do it, right? Unfortunately, because that would have been a great investment. But then I kind of lost interest in that, got distracted with school and everything. And then later I went to HP, Holly Packard. And there was actually one guy who was really into crypto and wanted to do like some like student project because I was a student also, like a student at HP basically. And he wanted to do some student projects with Ethereum specifically, right? And that got me more interested because now it opens like the debate. It's like, okay, Bitcoin versus Ethereum and so forth. And that got me also more into the philosophical aspects of crypto, right? Like what is this supposed to be? Like what's the goal of crypto and so forth? And what I discovered after like many, like a, a longer path is that crypto is about value transfer, right? It's about transferring value from A to B. And, you know, smart contracts can help a lot with that, which is why I kind of got away from Ethereum because I realized that the more important parts about user experience, getting anonymity, right? Like getting money from A to B without revealing that too much on the blockchain. And yeah, also things like stability, like being, uh, being able to use in commerce. And those are like the three things that I found to be like the things I want to focus on. And actually I, I went to Prague like two weeks ago. So I had the chance to speak with David Friedman. Oh, nice. And like, yeah, the, the son of Milton Friedman, who some of your listeners may know. And he recommended the exact uh, same things. It was like, oh, it's user experience, it's anonymity, and it's uh, stability. So yeah, that's how I came to my ideas about crypto. So then explain to us a little bit about, you know, the differences between Bitcoin as a private coin opposed to something that's truly private, because I think that people might not understand, you know, really how these things function. Yes. So many people know like Bitcoin versus, let's say, Zcash or Monero. So with Bitcoin, what you have is a transparent chain. So you identities are not on the chain. Right. So everyone is just a random number. However, sometimes you interact with the outside world, for example, when you have interface with an exchange. And then that random number that you have will be associated with your identity. It'll say, okay, Tobias now moved some money from our exchange to this address. And then he will move, like, I will move that money somewhere else. For example, I could send it to Mikel. And then maybe down the line, it gets revealed that is you. And then we have a association. And then we, we know for a fact that I sent that money to you. And then if something is like, oh, something didn't, like we're not allowed to do a transfer or you have to do whatever. Like, you don't want anyone to know that. Also, like just out of privacy reasons, um, then you will be like what companies will do. And co companies like Coinbase and so forth, they are doing that. It's called chain analysis where you like, you get these dots of information, like, okay, to be a sent, we know to be a sent money to this address because he withdrew from an exchange and maybe he deposited back there and they will just have that, all of these individual like hints, right? It's like investigator kind. He doesn't have all the info, but they have some info. And what you have is all the transitions, right? And some transitions, maybe you don't know where is in between of them, but maybe through like some, it's like a riddle. Okay. Who's the odd one out? Then you can determine like, oh, actually the money went from that person to that person to that person. And that's the only like consistent solution to that. 
And with Bitcoin, you can do that because, for example, when you have multiple coins, so Bitcoin is a coin model. So if you think about, you have coins in your in your wallet, in your physical wallet, and you don't have them as in an account, right? So you have multiple coins, and they are all have their own individual number and whatever. But when you send them over to a merchant, you bundle them together. In it's like in this case, it's a, called a transaction. You bundle them together, and then you move that bundle over. And by bundling them together, you reveal that you are the owner of all of them, right? Like all of these belong to one person. Previously, it wasn't like clear or Maybe it wasn't clear at all, but after sending them over, you do that. And that leaks a lot of private info. Now, that is a problem, right? So there's two solutions to that, actually. So the one solution you already mentioned, which is privacy coins. Well, maybe maybe there's actually three solutions. And I'll talk about the last one, which is what, what I'm working on right now. So there's privacy coins, and I'll talk about those in a bit. Then there's just never leaking your like KYC data, like know your customer data. And the third one is Stamp, which I'm working on. And that actually works on Bitcoin. And I'll, but I'll, I'll get to that later. So you can actually retain privacy on Bitcoin if you use a different protocol. Maybe on Bitcoin, it might be a little inefficient. So I'm more favoring chains that are highly scalable, for example, eCash or Lotus. But in theory, it'd work, it work. you could retain a lot of privacy on Bitcoin too, if you employ these protocols. Let's go through the Bitcoin one. I think let's go in reverse order. Let's tackle the Bitcoin one because I'm super curious about that. And then I want to talk about Monero and Zcash and some of those other ones and try to understand how they all function. Yes. Just a disclaimer, I'm a huge fan of Monero and Zcash. Like I think those are incredible tools which we should use. But one thing that I'm afraid of is that they're not as scalable and we have some data on that. So it I'm a little afraid that they won't handle like a billion users or so. What I'm working on right now is something that is highly scalable, but which has, to, has the same model as Bitcoin, right? So you still have these transparent transactions. So, but then, then you're like, wait, doesn't this leak your private data, right? Like, doesn't this leak who, you, like, who you're sending money to? So to that, I would say you don't have to. Right. So what Stamp is doing, it adds a similar level of privacy as Monero and Zcash, but in a very different way. So the way Stamp works, and Stamp is running on Lotus, on the Lotus chain, is it kind of, imagine you have a wallet and it atomizes your coins into like very many relatively small coins. So, and you can like view that as a degree of privacy. So you have like a sliding scale of privacy there. So if you're like, if you want to be very private, you atomize it a lot into like maybe a thousand coins, whatever. But if you're like, I don't know, my device can't handle that much, or it's like a lot of uh, traffic that I have to uh, handle, then you only divide it into maybe a hundred coins or whatever. And then here's where the privacy uh, aspect comes in. When I send money over to Mikel, instead of bundling them all together and revealing that I'm the owner of them, and then allowing chain analysis because you can do like these laws of exclusion, right? So okay, these all belong to him. So therefore these have to belong to that other guy. You circumvent all of that. And what you do is you send these coins over individually, right? So you send all of these coins in individual transactions, each to their own address, which are all, which all belong to you, right? But you like, you don't care, like your wallet handles all of that. Uh, they all get moved over to your to addresses that are controlled by you. But if like hundreds and hundreds or millions of people do that, all of these transactions will like kind of vanish in that current, in that torrent of transactions that all just move coins from A, like individual coins from A to B. And that way you like don't leak that this, like this bundle of coins belonged to one person. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind is the transaction fees. Wouldn't They would have to be a sizable amount because sometimes the fees are getting out of control these days, especially on different chains. So how do you tackle that? Or are you, are you just paying for each transaction absolutely individually? So yes, you pay individually. However, this model only really works on very scalable blockchains. Okay. So for example, in, on Ethereum, this would be a disaster. Yeah, that's the because, first thing that came to my mind. The gas fees would just would eat up half of your portfolio. Exactly. This is because Ethereum is like, I would say it's unscalable because it has the, 
I would just say. So this might become a little technical, but if I think if you understand this, this will answer a lot of questions in crypto. So there's a thing in computer science, which is called parallelization. Like the way I explained that to my dad is like he's working at Mercedes, right? Make manufacturing cars. And they have like these machines that are like making bolts and whatever parts and whatever. And I'm like, okay, imagine there's like, I don't know, two people working at the machine, but they're like, no, we need to get more parts. We need to get more parts. Then you like put more people on that machine. Be like, okay, like let's figure out, okay, how can we move this thing faster, right? That more parts come out or whatever. But like at some point you hit a limit, right? The machine can only go so fast. At some point you reach like the uh, speed of sound or whatever. And after that, it will like break into pieces. And then like the obvious solution to get more parts is to just have more machines that are working in parallel. This is what is incredibly important in computer science in order to make things more scalable. But what Ethereum unfortunately has is that you can't just split that into multiple machines because every step, like if you think about it in a machine, every step is dependent on a previous one, right? So the first has this, and then you can like, you have to move on to the next one and so forth. So what that means like we call that ordered, like the, the transactions, they have to be processed in order. You can't like skip ahead because on Ethereum, if, if you send money to someone and then they send that back, it could be that, or like you make a whole bunch of transactions. It could be that at some point your balance goes below zero if you order them in a certain way. But if you order them in another way, your balance doesn't go below zero, but your balance cannot ever go below zero. So it's important that you process them in order. Now, yeah, okay, this all makes sense, but this seems like a, a fundamental problem. Like, how do you avoid that, right? And what Satoshi actually discovered, which me and like, I don't know, Amory Zachet and like, we're still scratching our head how he came to that idea, which is absolutely incredible, is that you, instead of having like an account, so Ethereum's account-based, you have individual coins and you have... You can imagine them as they are in your wallet, only they're like in your physical wallet, but they're digital. And they also have all their unique serial number and so forth, right? What turns out is that that coin model, right? We, in technical speak, we call that unspent transaction output, UTXO. So if you heard the term UTXO, then just replace that with, with like a coin, like a digital coin you have in your wallet. So the UTXO, the digital coin, you can actually process them incredibly efficiently in parallel because you can verify that the balance never goes below zero. It's like encoded in the way the coins work, right? Because you can be like, okay, you just have to check whether the in an individual transaction, if the coins that go in are larger or equal than the coins that go out. That's the first check you do. And then in the second check, you just verify that uh, the coins that get created or that, that get used are also those that are get created. And it turns out that you can, in computer science terms, you can parallelize that very, very efficiently. So you can have like a whole bunch of machines that can process them in parallel that can do that very, very efficiently. So the answer to your question is like, how do you prevent the transaction fees? It's just you make it incredibly efficient to verify these transactions. And what you get in return is you can use that to anonymize your payments. Okay. It makes sense. Most of it. Most of it does make sense. Thank you for the preface. It. Okay. I have heard in Bitcoin that they use things, I think it's called a tumbler or something as well for privacy. So they would send coins to a special wallet, they'd mix them all up, and then they'd spit them out the other side with no one knowing where they're going. First of all, does that work? And second of all, you know, why is that not a solution? And why is breaking it into a thousand or a hundred different wallets a better solution? So that's still a viable option to do that. But unfortunately, you tell like on the blockchain you tell everyone hey i tumbled my coins right like everybody knows okay this coin is from a tumbled output and then if you ever like need to do something more legit right like maybe you want to deposit your coins at coinbase or whatever then they'll immediately be like no 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 come on dude like this is obviously from a tumble like please send us your address we'll send your coins back right like we can't do that so they're basically like flagged then after that yeah, they're like quote unquote dirty because I don't know how they work exactly on Bitcoin, but on Bitcoin Cash, 
And also in eCash, they have, they call it CoinFusion, which I think has a little bit more privacy since the amounts you can put in are arbitrary and has better UX in that sense. But they know that these transactions look incredibly suspicious, right? It's like a transaction that has like 76 uh, inputs or whatever, and then 83 outputs and all other transactions look completely different, right? They look out like a sore thumb, I guess. So you can be anonymous with them, but then it's very clear that you are being anonymous and then there's going to be more scrutiny towards yeah. those coins. Okay. Interesting. And on the individual coin model, it actually looks less suspicious because what a chain analysis would say right now is that that person sent money to it himself, right? Like when you have money in a, in a wallet and you send the exact amount down to the Satoshi, because that's what it seems like. Usually what you're doing is you're moving your money from like from your computer to your phone, wallet, yeah. whatever, right? Because you're sending the entire amount down to the Satoshi. So like you don't care if it's like point five, six, eight, nine, seven, or whatever, you just want to move the entire amount. But with the stamp model, right, where you have these individual coins, you're actually sending money over to, to, a, to a real person. But it looks like you, that real person is the sender, if that makes sense. It does make sense. But so how would it work then? You, you would have your own wallet, you would send it through stamp to another wallet that you own, or stamp is the wallet, and that's your new wallet that you would have all of these different ones. Yeah, it's the latter. Like you still want that other person to receive one transaction, right? It should be like, okay, plus $50 or whatever. It shouldn't be like a hundred transactions that all look like they're coming from different people because you don't like, how, how can you do any kind of business this way? This is horrible user experience. What Stamp does, it actually, it has a second layer of communication, which connects the wallets such, such that one wallet can tell the other wallet like off-chain, right? Basically anonymously. I mean, peer completely encrypted, right? So if you don't leak your data, it's like, okay, these bunch of transactions, they all belong to you and they're all one thing and they come from me. You can even attach metadata like, hey, this is Tobias, right? Tobias is sending you this money. Then you have more anonymity, but you also have better uh, UX. You have better user experience because you can have like, you can also send messages Right. So you can be like, okay, here's $50 and you can explain, or can you send me, or I accidentally sent too much. Can you send me 10 back or whatever? You can have like a conversation within the wallet. Yeah. So when you go in as the user, it's not going to be, you don't have to sign in 100 times into 100 different wallets to see it. It's all going to be consolidated from what you see, but in the background, there's a lot more going on. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I have to, Preface, we are still in development. I always say it works 90% of the time, which is a ridiculously bad number, right? Because if it goes, if it's about money, then it should really work 99.999% of the time because otherwise, you know, but we have a working prototype, right? It, it uh, works. And now we're like working to make an actual product that people can use because um, talking to people who are in crypto, like all they can talk about is, oh, we need privacy, we need privacy coins. Oh, and everybody knows Bitcoin isn't private and so forth. And I totally agree. Like, this is something we really need. And also, like, if we have a messenger built into the wallet, which is very, like, encrypted just as, just as good as Signal, then even more decentralized, and we can get to that uh, maybe in a bit, then that's really something that is in demand, right? Like, I've been talking to people. They need that. <laughs> well, and I like how you are building it on the back of Bitcoin opposed to, hey, we need a completely new chain and a completely new token, and then trying to move people over on something new, you're actually using something that is near and dear to many people's hearts and then just increasing the usability of it. So that's amazing. Some of the messages that get sent between the wallets, there has to be a payment on the blockchain. And right now we are doing that on the Lotus blockchain, which is a new blockchain. Okay. Right. But like, if you are have a coin that's near and dear to you, like I don't know, Bitcoin, Doge. I mean, especially coins that are not as expensive. So if you have like the time to time the market with the fees and whatever, then it works fine. But especially coins like eCash, which is a form of Bitcoin. So if you have old Bitcoin, you have eCash, and then it allows you to anonymize your transactions and use the Lotus blockchain to communicate between, between wallets. Just wanted to clarify that you can use your coins that are near and dear. 
Okay. Well, I was about to move on. So I do think that there is more things to explain. So really what you're saying is that this can be used on many different blockchains, not just on the back of Bitcoin then. Yeah. Okay. So you could have a multi-chain wallet and to go really crazy, like if you send someone money over, you could be like, okay, let's go hyper anonymous because I'm going to send you in like five different cryptocurrencies and they're all like completely uncorrelated, right? Because like you don't, you don't see anything. So you could send some portion over in Doge, some portion in LTC, some portion in BCH, some portion in eCash. And they all look like one bundle and they're uncorrelated. So you could do that. I mean, this is obviously far down the roadmap, but this is all technically possible and I think would be really cool. Okay, very cool. So on our new website at expatmoney.com, I have put out a special report on getting a plan B residency and instant citizenships. I think that this is really important stuff and I want to get this into your hands straight away. You can grab it for free if you go to expatmoney.com and you'll see it right at the very top. All you need to do is just put in your name and email address. You're going to be able to access it instantly. There's no cost for it. I'm not selling anything. I just want you to get this information. You're going to be able to join my newsletter. You're going to be able to stay up to date with all all of the important work that we're doing at Expat Money. And yeah, it's going to be amazing. So go to expatmoney.com, grab the special report on getting a Plan B residency or instant citizenship and enjoy, read it. It's important stuff. I think you're really going to like it. Okay, let's get back into the interview. All right, let's get into Monero, Zcash, any other privacy coins. First of all, how do they work? And you've explained your system. Do you think that they're that's solving problems that Monero and stuff is not solving? Or like, I, I'm just trying to understand why we would need what you're doing opposed to what's already in existence. Yes. So, I mean, as I said, I'm a fan of Monero and Zcash, but I'm afraid or like there's good data to show that they work fine right now. But once we get like, I don't know, hundreds of millions of users who use that regularly, that there will be similar problems as we see on, for example, Ethereum, right? That fees go up right now. They, they aren't, but you know, like people, we need to start being like, Hey, this might be an issue, right? Like in the future, we don't want you all to like lock yourself into a system that then is like hard to fix. But, however, I still like encourage people to use Zcash, right? Cause we need to have the, we need to bootstrap an economy based on that and Zcash works, Monero works. So right? Like, I don't want to discredit them uh, whatsoever. So how does Monero work? How does Zcash work? So they both use advanced cryptography, so to speak. And the way uh, Monero works is that it's a very interesting model where you sort of say, like, they also have a coin model. So you have coins lying around. But when you send a coin from one, one place to another, like, let's say I send coins over to you on the blockchain, they kind of get duplicated. So the old coin is still there and the new coin is also there. Like it's a little, it's crypto magic, but like that's the way you can think about it. And then what you do is you make a, a cryptographic proof that the amount of money stayed the same, right? So you, don't, you didn't like create any money out of, out of nothing. And the way you get the privacy is that you say, okay, I have this transaction and these are all the inputs, right? What you do is you specify a whole bunch of inputs. You specify, maybe you have two coins in your wallet, but instead you specify like 20, right? And they don't even have to be yours. They could be old coins that somebody else had, which I don't know, have been around for a while. And then what you do is you say, okay, I know like two of these coins. I have a signature for two of these coins. I'm not gonna tell you which one, like cryptographically, but two of them I do know, right? And then what you also do is you make a proof that is like, okay, I know two of these coins and I'm moving money over to these other addresses. And by doing that, the uh, money supply stays the same. I barely get my mind around that. So I, I like try to explain it as simple as possible. <laughs> I'm a little bit cross-eyed after that one. I'm just going to go with it's magic. It works like magic. <laughs> now, does Zcash and Monero work on the same type of system? Like, is it the same mechanism for both of these or do they have differences between the two? Yes, they have differences. Zcash has two kinds of transactions. They have transparent transactions and they have shielded transactions. Shielded transactions are much harder to do. So when I do them on my phone, it takes like 10 seconds 
uh, roughly maybe a little less to like just sign the transaction. Whereas a normal Bitcoin transaction, it takes like 70 microseconds or so, like very, very fast to do a signature. So that means that Zcash is using very advanced technology. The technology they're using is called zero knowledge proofs. That's where the Z comes from. And zero knowledge, that's perfect for anyone who's into uh, anonymity. So if you hear anything zero knowledge related and you are into anonymity, then, you know, maybe pay a little bit of attention. And those are very novel kind of cryptography. Like people only talked about that theoretically, like just, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. But now we actually have the mathematics to do these kinds of proofs. And basically what it is, you can prove a statement to be true without revealing any kind of additional information. So what you can do, like what Zcash does is like, okay, I moved money over to another place. I'm not going to tell you from where to where. I just moved money and the money supply stays the same. Right. So that's the proof you're doing. You're not revealing the amount you sent. You're not revealing the addresses where the money came from. And you're not revealing where the money went to. Right. You're not revealing any of that. I mean, obviously, what you are revealing is like the timestamp when the money was sent and maybe your IP address if you're not careful. But other than that, it's, it's very, very private. I would say that Zcash is probably, if you use shielded transactions, and to be honest, they massively improved the user experience on that. So it's quite convenient, not as fast as like, let's say eCash transactions, but very, very like. So why would someone not want to do that? Like, why do they have two versions? Why is there not the standard where it's the most secure? Because it takes longer time to do the transaction. Is that the main hurdle there? Yeah, probably the way they did that originally was that it took like a minute or so to compute these, right? And over time, they were able to optimize them. So initially, it was more like a, a research kind of thing. We're like, hey, we are able to do these. Let's launch our coin and get into production quickly. But we, we also have to have these transparent transactions, which are just ordinary Bitcoin transactions. And we do those because we want people to use the coin. And these shielded transactions are there for people who are like fine with like waiting a bunch of time, like the cryptography just doesn't take them. So did they come afterwards? Is that like an upgrade on it? Or they came out at the same time and they knew that one was going to be slower and one was going to be faster. So they gave people the options. Yes, they came out simultaneously, but over time they upgraded them. And they were okay, like if you do them differently, then we can be faster. And also like one thing, if you were to ask, oh, is there anything that like is concerning about Monero or Zcash, then I would think that I would say the most concerning thing is that is the magic aspect, right? So first of all, I was trying to read how Zcash works and it's either like, oh, using Zcash is like shouting in a cave, like very, very simple analogies, or it's like these symbols and mathematical constructs, which are very, very advanced, which is just like, you have to spend like years in order to like catch up to the, just the, what the symbols mean, right? You have to like learn basically a new language. And what that means is that there's fewer eyes who are looking at that and who are capable of looking at that as opposed to Bitcoin, which is very, very simple to understand, right? You can learn that in maybe a year and have like a thorough understanding of all the moving parts, peer to peer and everything. Even the encryption is really not that difficult. Like if you know a little bit about mathematics, then it's not that hard. Whereas Monero and especially Zcash, they are way more fragile, way harder to really nail. And what actually was the consequence of that? And that happened on both Monero and Zcash and is in my view a little concerning is that there was a bug in the cryptography. You have to do the math, but you have to do the math correctly in the notes where in practice you can create coins out of thin air, right? So you can duplicate your money by exploiting some kind of cryptography bug, right? So that is for anyone who's like, oh, let me invest all my money into privacy coins. Then it'd be like, Yes, but maybe hedge some with coins that are transparent, right? That where like you can trace ownership, we can trace amounts because they already have been exploits, small amounts, right? Because people were testing and like whatever, but where people have minted coins out of thin air. And the really concerning part there is that these are impossible to detect until you kind of find the bug on your own, right? If you're like, oh, actually you can, you know, find a zero if you multiply these numbers, whatever, right? And then you're like, oh, wait a second, someone minted coins out of thin air using this bug. 
right? But that's not good, right? Ideally, you have like an alert system, which is like danger, danger. Somebody made a transaction that created money out of thin air, and we know that. Whereas on Zcash and Monero, they both already had attacks that some flaw in the mathematics was exploited. Hopefully, over time, those will become less and less, but we it's hard to know, right? Like that's the occult part about that. Well, it also makes sense. I mean, you can scale up on the user side of the coins, but if you can't scale up on the developer side, if there's just not enough people who understand it and can actually look at it, then I can see how that definitely would become a problem over the years. Because if you're going to continue to upgrade these blockchains and move the ball downfield, then I mean, you need people who can actually get their head around it and understand it. So that is something to watch out for, I guess. Now, I remember reading a number of years ago, because I think Monero has been around forever. Like, I mean, I remember mining Monero in 2017 or something like that. And then I kind of lost touch of things. But if I remember correctly, wasn't there a big, I don't know if it was the NSA or the IRS or one of these other agencies who said, if you can crack Monero, then we'll pay a ridiculously large sum as a prize money, basically. Whatever happened with that? And correct me on my details, because I can't remember. I don't know about that specific occurrence, but it makes total sense that the government has a lot of resources and they have a lot of intelligence, right? Like they have the NSA, they have NSNIST, which is like, they basically standardized all the cryptography in that, that we use in Bitcoin, right? Like they are the ones that made that. We just use their tech, right? So they are ahead on that front. So what you could do, and I th- and there's some people who believe that that already happened and not just on, on other places, is that you just infiltrate existing projects. You're like, oh, hey, new hire, right? <laughs> I'm here to improve Zcash. Hello. Yeah. Hello, fellow cryptographers. Taxes theft, taxes theft. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm one of you. Taxes bad. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone know how to buy illegal firearms? <laughs> <laughs> that was last week's episode. That was last week's episode. <laughs> so yes, you know, like if you require incredibly skilled, and, and I'm not alleging anything, obviously, like like I'm not saying that, but it's it just opens the door, right? It just opens the door for incredibly specialized cryptographers to step in. And I experienced that firsthand when I was working on Bitcoin Cash. Now I'm no longer working on Bitcoin Cash, but when I was working on that, I made a change right, to Bitcoin Cash, which is called OP Reverse Bytes. So it's a new opcode. That was that was like a bunch of years ago. And it did something very simple. It just reversed a bunch of bytes. Like very, very simple. Right. And that is very important for it turns out for token smart contracts. That's yeah, not important, but was useful for tokens. Uh, it still is. And what then happened is that someone hacked that opcode. Right, because there on another node, BCHD, there was a bug in the implementation, and what actually happened is that someone sp- specifically crafted a transaction that made it such that BCHD would reject blocks, whereas the other nodes would accept them. So that forked the network into two separate networks, right? And they they had to do a whole bunch of things scrambling to get them back together on one chain. And that obviously is very bad. But what that shows is that there are people who are malicious. And they also announced, like, they called us stupid in the transaction, right? They added some message to be like, hey, you're also idiots or something. Something more poetic. <laughs> it was like a little bit poetic, but I forgot what it was exactly. Calling you out specifically or the team or, or the blockchain itself? Oh, just the blockchain itself. So like, oh, uh, the difference between stupidity and whatever, something like that. I, I, I forgot the exact wording, but it was like making us look stupid. Trolling you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what that showed is that they understood the code better than the developer, right? Like they were like, oh, that guy, he messed up here. And, you know, like back then they were all volunteers, right? Like they weren't getting paid to do any of that, right? And now there are more funding mechanisms. There's like... Uh, donations and so forth, like the system is kind of working and like that. But back then, you know, like they just did that as a hobby, but people, probably malicious agents and probably people who are like working for banks, working for the government, like they were discovering these flaws in the code and then executing attack just to like discredit it, to embarrass like, you, and derail right? it a little bit, embarrass and maybe make people quit. I think that's the best, best thing you can do, right? Like somehow make people quit voluntarily, right? And 
that showed it firsthand because I was like responsible for that change. I mean, I obviously I can't review all the notes of other systems, but I reviewed the one that I was working on very thoroughly. I do know how to keep up with that, which is to like spend more resources and funding and not rely on volunteers. But yeah, that's my take. Okay. So I think this is a good segue because we kind of touched on government agencies. Let's get into the CBDC kind of stuff here. First of all, explain to everybody what this is, and then we'll go in whichever direction you want on it. Yes. So a CDBC is very simple. It allows people to send US dollars from person to person directly by only going through the Federal Reserve. Right. So right now, if we have this two-layer model, so to speak, so we have the Federal Reserve, they, they are like a bank, but their only customers are other banks. So when you have money at the bank and you send that over to somewhere else, then what the bank will do eventually, they will send some money from their bank account at the Federal Reserve over to another bank. And now with Bitcoin, some very smart people at the Federal Reserve, yes, there are some, realize that, wait a second, we can use that ourselves, that model of Bitcoin, right? Which is just one big database that can handle a ridiculous amount of transactions. So what the difference is that the central bank digital currency, CDBC, instead of be instead of sending money from bank to bank, you send money from person to person and all the transactions are verified by the central bank. So you no longer have a bank account at like Bank of America or Commerzbank in Germany. You have money at the Federal Reserve. Your account is at the Federal Reserve directly. So that's the difference. And you could say like, okay, okay, you just exchange one bank to another. But in my view, you just have one entity that tracks and verifies and handles all transactions. That's just a big invitation for the devil. Right? Just like you get a whole bunch of, basically it's a panopticon, but it also allows you to just blacklist people from the economy itself. Because we already have stable coins. Like you would think that, okay, if they were trying to present a solution, and I don't think they are, I mean, the only solution for them is more power can, and control over us. But if they were really trying to sell this to people, then stable coins wouldn't already exist because that kind of already does what we need it to do if we need to have things that are not going to be as volatile as sending Bitcoin or any of the other tokens that are out there, right? I think it's more complicated. So which stable coins are really that great. So we have Tether and Tether, you know, like people have question marks around that. And it also like it runs either on Bitcoin, which is expensive to send, or the majority is actually on Ethereum, which is even more expensive to send. So all the Federal Reserve has to do is just make it really cheap to send US dollars and to like plug it into all the existing financial services. And then also to make it really, really complicated to use a stable coin that's not the Federal Reserve coins. So I think in a twisted way, they're actually solving problems, right? They're actually like being a market participant, only that three ways they are getting their quote unquote product into the market. First of all, by having the recognition and authority, right? Like if there's, they say something, like it's going to be way more impactful than if say some like Coinbase says something or like introduces something. Second of all is obviously the guns of the government, right? Like they can just be like, hey, like this is legal tender, use it or you get trouble. Whereas I can't do that. I can force people to accept my stable coin. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't be legal. And the third one is to allow easy integration into existing financial markets, right? Like the regulations can be very friendly towards the CDBC and very unfriendly towards all stable coins. And yeah, and it, so I think it doesn't look too good with stablecoins unless we are smart about how we move. Okay. I don't know. I would think anybody who is going to be using CDBDCs is an absolute traitor to the cause and should be tarred and feathered. So I just can't see that anybody in the crypto sphere is going to actually use any of this, which means that they're not actually targeting people like you and I as the user base. They must be going after the normies then. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're targeting normies, but they are quite sneaky about that because so there's the biggest project that the Federal Reserve is working on and that they publicly announced and everything is called Project Hamilton. And one of the 
big ideas behind Project Hamilton is that they want to ensure privacy, which we might be like, wait a second, like, isn't this <laughs> supposed to be a panopticon or whatever? But they make some good arguments, which I think are nonsense, but like they make a good argument that, that they're like, hey, this is actually much more private than Bitcoin because there's no public blockchain where you can inspect these transactions. And also the Federal Reserve pinky promise, like we, we showed you the code, right? We're not storing any transactions. We're all throwing them away. There's no blockchain that like stores transactions. There's just the current state of the system. Also, the current state of the system is encrypted, right? So we don't even know how much money you have or like if you have any money and so forth. Pinky promise, we keep that encrypted. So if they're like able to convince people and I think like talking to, to people, some of them are like, oh, I'm curious how they, like I heard they're trying to do privacy on the CDBC. Like I'm curious how they're able to achieve that. If they're actually doing what they're claiming they're doing and like actually throwing away the data that they're claiming to throw away, then yes, it's actually quite private. But <laughs> I rather believe in the tooth fairy than that they are actually deleting all of that data. I mean, come on, like they spend billions of dollars to like hack the encryption or like even the random number generators in our phones. And now we're like handing them over <laughs> that data through the CDBC. Obviously, they're going to track all of that. So you ask like, how are normies going to accept that? And it's very, very simple. It's going to be through stimulus checks, right? It's going to be like, okay. You are poor. That's bad, right? You lost your business. Oh, so sad. The, the the virus stopped you from being able to go to open your shop, to go to work. Now you're unemployed. That is very, very sad. But we have a solution. Here is CDBC coin, right? Here's some money. We are so generous. Here's, I don't know, $2,000 in CDBC money. You can spend that wherever you want, as long as it is approved by us, <laughs> right? Because they can be like, okay, they're spending constraints. They're actually doing that in China already. And then people will be like, well, it's free money and I can buy stuff with it. Like we can call them traitors, but like if the government is giving you free money to like buy groceries and stuff and like the other option is to, I don't know, become a farmer and become self-sufficient or to starve, then I mean, obviously become a farmer and become self-sufficient. You like accept the money and go to Walmart and like buy, um, I don't know, some soft drink that will poison you or whatever, right? I think the whole thing is really interesting. I mean, it's really scary as well, though, when we start looking at the dark side of this and what it could mean. And the fact that it's happening not in just one country, that we're not talking about one jurisdiction or one country that's moving forward with this. It's got to be how many countries now are pushing for this technology or are starting to hint that these types of things will be unleashed? Like a lot right now. I thought like it's a lot. It's a lot. It's definitely in the two digit number of. And there's actually been a bunch of rollouts already. Right. Like, I mean, some of them failed, like the Inaya, like in Nigeria, they rolled that out, but it didn't quite deliver on the user experience. So people stopped using it. Even I've, I've been in the Czech Republic and even there they have a central bank. They're like, okay, this actually solves a bunch of problems for us. Even just like technical problems, right? Like the, maybe they're not in it for the panopticon. They're just in it for like, oh, we need to solve X, Y, Z problems. And this just solves it. And yeah, I mean, the US, they passed, I think, the eCash e uh, bill, right? So they want to move ahead with um, a central bank digital currency that has certain properties. And, you know, like all in, in Europe, they're talking about the digital euro. That obviously will encompass a whole bunch of countries. But it's uh, right now, it's especially like smaller jurisdictions. I think Jamaica also has their own coin. It's really, really scary. So I actually looked, I read the paper. So, so in my view, Project Hamilton is the most pay attention to that. Nobody in crypto is talking about Project Hamilton. It delivers up on its name. So Project Hamilton. Well, it's aptly named. I assume that's Hamilton as in Alexander Hamilton, the exactly guy who started the Federal Reserve. So the first central bank. So aptly named for sure. Yeah. So do research on that. Me and Amaury Sachet, 
is working on eCache. He's the lead developer of eCache. We made a thorough like technical analysis of that. So if you're like slightly technically uh, minded, that will be very, very helpful for you to understand like what's actually going on there. Also, Suprian Vinamani made a bunch of videos on like the economics aspect of that. I recommend if you want to figure out like, okay, like we need to be ahead of them, right? Like we shouldn't be behind of them. Like we should know like what they're up to. What's it, Sun Tzu? Like know your enemy like yourself or something. Like we need to study this. Few people are talking about it. Like it had a blip of interest, but now like people are like, eh, whatever, CDBC. Well, I've had enough of my private clients who have asked me. I mean, I work mostly with private clients on helping them to move offshore and we deal with their tax situation and the immigration and privacy and anonymity and everything like that. And I've had so many people ask me about this. I was like, I need to do an episode on this and learn from someone who really, really understands it. So this is as much education is for me as it is for anyone else out in there in the world. You know what it really strikes me as is another arms race. But this time, instead of being between governments, it's between people like us, the populace and the government. But it is an arms race still. Yes, exactly. Because... How do I introduce that idea? It's so ridiculous. So here's something that nobody is talking about. The Project Hamilton, the developers that built Project Hamilton are Bitcoin developers. Corey Fields, Vladimir Vandalan. Initially, also uh, Gavin and Reason worked a little bit on that, but he, he left probably because he was like, ah, no. But, you know, Corey Fields is a named author in the Project Hamilton paper, the technical paper, he wrote a lot of code for the OpenCDBC project. And simultaneously, while he was working on that, he was still making commits on Bitcoin, right? Like he was you know, working on that, changing things, optimizing things. So how is that not something that we are concerned about? Like, why are the people who are supposedly helping us to have a private or like a best store of value or whatever, right? Like the best currency, like as Bitcoin maximalists like to claim. Why are the same people working on Project Hamilton CDBC, which ostensibly is a move to enslave us? In my view, this is unacceptable. And in my view, this needs to be talked about more. And yeah, so I encourage everyone to do, to do their research. Any insights why they are working on this. I mean, to go back to what I said earlier about traders, I mean, that's got to be Judas. I mean, yeah, <laughs> Bitcoin Judases. Yeah. But I mean, don't harass anyone. Obviously, it's just that we need to, in my view, create a little bit of a culture of. Well, I think we do need to ask questions, but do you have any insights why they might decide? So, two reasons. First of all, money, I think, like we don't know. And also, like threats. Right. Like, okay. Like, but it's probably mostly, mostly money. Just like, okay. Here's $10 million or whatever. Right. And you can be like, okay, if you don't do it, someone else does it. Right? Like we literally print money. Right. Like we don't care. Like if you don't do it, someone else does it. And I think that might be a motivated to be like, oh, I'll just try my best to like, not turn this into something horrible. Right. Like you could be like, oh, if I, like, I know how to make it less horrible. So let me do that. And the other one, which I think is Another big factor that is not talked about is that it turns out that the Bitcoin model, as I said, is actually incredibly scalable. You can process these transactions incredibly efficiently and in parallel. It's just that on Bitcoin, the culture on Bitcoin BTC, the culture is such that you cannot make any changes to the system. And even trying to scale Bitcoin is an attack on Bitcoin. Like that's the current culture that we have on Bitcoin. I don't want to hate on that. Like there's a good reason to be like, oh, let's just like, I mean, we are in an adver adversarial relationship with everything, right? Like, let's just keep Bitcoin as it is. Let, let's keep it running. Like, we don't want to mess with it. We don't want to like change it. And then like, there'll be a bug. We, like they already had that, right? They changed it. And then there was like a horrible, horrible bug and just didn't happen once. So they were, oh, if we try to scale that, then there'll be like all these influences and it's just going to be a whole mess. But what that means is that the developers who are incredibly capable, like Corey Fields, incredibly capable guy, right? Like Amri Sachet, he told me like, oh, he worked with him and he's very professional and very, very like brilliant. So what that created, the developers who are actually capable of building that are like, I can't engineer Bitcoin anymore, right? Like there's nothing I can do. Like if I try to do that and if I try to suggest that this, I want this scalable stuff to work, I will be demonized, right? I will be like someone attacking Bitcoin. Right? Oh, this is an attack on Bitcoin. 
I mean, and you know, there's room for that. But what that created is like it created this drain of capable developers who are like moving to other projects. And the majority of them, I guess, moved over to like blockchain stuff like Ethereum and, and eCash, right? A lot of them switched over to stuff that's, you know, not uh, evil, I guess. But some were like, okay, like, like, why wouldn't I do that if, you know, I get paid and I can execute this incredible technical feat? I'm going to use a Star Wars analogy. You remember the movie Rogue One, where we finally figured out how like one shot could destroy the entire Death Star. And that's because I can't remember what the the character's name, but the actor was Mads Mikkelsen. And he was the one who developed it and he put this fatal flaw in the Death Star. Maybe what that that's what these guys are doing. Someone's got to do it. So they're going to put in the fatal flaw. And then when they launch it, the whole thing is going to implode. And they're actually going to be heroes. Maybe they are heroes. But I'm just, a, I'm, I'm super optimistic because I just don't see how they could be Bitcoin Judas. Like, I mean, it's just so disgusting. There's got to be some type of option, other alternative for this. I don't know. And I don't blame them. Like, I don't want to pile on them. I just have different preferences. And I saw it firsthand where there's been crypto wars. Like I've been demonized as well on Bitcoin Cash because I wanted like a different funding model. And then people just start not being themselves anymore, right? They, they just behave differently. And maybe a lot of that is manipulation, right? Maybe a lot of that is like them getting lured into something. Guaranteed. I mean, the infighting is famous in many different groups of libertarian. I mean, just even in libertarianism itself, people will argue about small details instead of fighting what we know the real problems are, like centralized government. And then they'll get so hung up on these really small things. And I've seen it in crypto as well. And it's like, okay, let's just move past this and let's focus on the bigger picture. I'm such a 40,000 foot view kind of guy that I just gloss over all of those types of things and think about the overall message and the awareness that we're trying to share on this. No, absolutely. Also, another thing which eCash actually solved is that initially all the Bitcoin developers were volunteers, right? Like they donated their free time as highly, highly capable cryptographers and engineers to Bitcoin, but they didn't become rich, right? It was the miners and speculators who became rich. All the developers, they were relying on donations, right? And people being generous and whatever, but you know, it's a public goods problem. Like who was like, oh, someone else will pay them, right? Like, oh, okay, they already have like, I don't know, $10,000. That's fine, right? You can live in a, in a shack for 10000 Why do I need to donate? So at some point they're like, why am I doing this? Why am I just throwing away my time for Bitcoin and not like getting, maybe I get recognition, but I don't get really get paid. And so what then happened actually, like historically, is that the MIT so there's a subsection of that, which is called the media labs, media and whatever. And then there's a subsection of that subsection, I don't know, department um, called digital currency initiative. And what they did, they were like, ah, no worries, Bitcoin developers. We hire you. Here's a bunch of money. Do whatever you want. Like continue working on Bitcoin, right? You don't have to worry. Just make it secure. Like this is incredible technology for humanity, right? Like we want you all to work on that. And that was. 2015 or something, right? That was like not that short after Bitcoin came to be a little bit, but considering it's the MIT, that is actually not that uh, not that long. And they were able to build on Bitcoin and develop more and focus their time on that. But what then happened, I think, is that at some point you like your psychology changes, right? You are like, okay, this is whoever pays me money. You get invited to parties or you get invited to whatever. And you just have a different view on like, depending on who you're around and who pays you money. And then what actually happened is that a bunch of years later, they announced a collaboration with the Boston Fed and MIT Media Labs that they are working on how to create a digital currency, right? And then if you're like still working there and your assignment changes, it's like very natural for you to be like, all right, like now I'm working on something else. Yeah, it's a bit insidious. I mean, yeah. In my view, that was a genius, maybe just a standard, but it's a genius move by the existing powers to just employ the people and like start with just giving the money for whatever they wanted to, to do anyway. And then, you know, nudge them towards whatever they actually want them to do. And then it actually turns out that a lot of the money that funded the digital currency initiative, and that's all public. And the organizers of that actually apologized for that 
namely that the money came through Jeffrey Epstein, right? <laughs> the money that funded these developments. The icing on the cake. Excellent. Right. Found itself <laughs> from Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, definitely icing on the cake. <laughs> Brilliant. Tobias, amazing conversation. I learned so much today. If my listeners want to find out more about what you do, if they want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about the projects that you're working on or how they can get involved, where can we send them? So the most important part is my Twitter. I'm posting crypto-related stuff. I try to keep it simple. It's not too technical. Sometimes I post about raw milk or something that's interesting. It's at Tobias Ruck. So Tobias, R-U-C-K, all together. Maybe you can link that in the description or so. Absolutely. Um, the other important parts are if you want to learn about eCash, which where I'm working on, or Lotus, eCash is just e.cash. And Lotus is givelotus.org. For example, if you want to learn about Stamp, you can go to t.me slash Stamp Chat all together. But yeah, the most important one is, I think, my Twitter. You'll, you'll learn about that. If you want to dig deeper, e.cash, givelotus.org, or t.me slash Stamp Chat. Perfect. And I'll make sure I have the links to all of those at expatmoneyshow.com under Tobias's episode. Thank you so much for being on the show. And we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So a bit of an update for you guys. Our Facebook group, Expat Money Forum, has grown so fast. It's unbelievable. I think we are at around 6,000 people who have joined the group. It's pretty funny in there, I have to be honest with you, because sometimes we get these really woke commies that try to join the group. They last like a week and then someone pushes them out or they say something that upsets and these social justice warriors just start crying and get really, really angry and throw a fit and think that they're tactics of being a victim are going to work in our group. And it's just not the case. So it's so funny. I want you guys to see what's going on in there. We call it shaking the tree. So anytime you see in the group, someone shaking the tree, either through a meme or something that they're putting out, it just, it's so funny to watch the reactions. Anyways, the group is growing like crazy. If you're not a member already, I highly encourage you to join. It's free. There is no cost. And you can either find it by searching for us on Facebook, Expat Money Forum, or go to expatmoneyforum.com and it'll redirect you to the site. We're having so much fun over there. If you haven't joined the conversation, I hope you do soon. That's it. Let's go. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.